the world is already much more regional than we think. We look at these last 40 plus years and we think about it as, you know, the Hallison days of globalization. And this is when global supply chains proliferated. Uh, and you see imports from China and all these things happening all around the world. But really over this last 40 years, yes, those things have happened, but more often than not, you saw regionalization. The open rules-based trading system is under pressure. As countries increasingly seek to leverage economic interdependence for geopolitical gain, what does it mean for the future of globalization? Will Russia's war in Ukraine mark a watershed moment? And with multilateral trade governance at its weakest in decades, how can the system adapt to these challenges and to the impact of climate change? These are some of the issues explored by the AIG Global Trade Series 2022 a series of podcasts brought to you by AIG in partnership with some of the world's leading centers of expertise on global trade. The series moderator is Rem Kortovec of the Klingendal Institute. Hello and welcome to the AIG Global Trade Series 2022, a series of podcast conversations with leading thinkers on the future of international trade. My name is Rem Kortovec. I'm a senior research fellow at the Klingendal Institute in the Netherlands, and today, we happen to re be recording our final episode of this season. Now, the past year, we have focused on a wide range of topics shaping global trade dynamics, from the impact of the war in Ukraine to the future of digital trade, from EU-US trade coordination to how climate objectives can be served through trade policy. And we thought we would try to tie some of these things together with a discussion on how to think about globalization and its future. And so the question for today is, is the future of global trade regional? Now, we have two fantastic speakers joining us. Firstly, from New York, Shannon O'Neill. Shannon is the Vice President, Deputy Director of Studies, and Nelson and David Rockefeller Senior Fellow for Latin America Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. Shannon is an expert on global trade, supply chains, and Latin America. She also happens to be the author of a terrific recent book entitled The Globalization Myth, Why Regions Matter. And from Dubai, we're joined by Fazuki Shastri. Fazuki is an Asia watcher and author of the book, Has Asia Lost It? Dynamic Past, Turbulent Future. He currently advises on environmental, social, and governance issues and is connected to Chatham House's Asia-Pacific program. He was also most recently head of public affairs at Standard Chartered Bank. Both Shannon and Fazuki have joined the Global Trade Series podcast before, so a very warm welcome back to you both. Since this episode wraps up this year's Global Trade Series, and don't worry, we'll be back in 2023, I wanted to ask you what your main takeaway is from 2022. What do you think was the most notable development or developments of the past year in the world of trade? And what do you think that tells us about the future ahead? Perhaps, Shannon, you can get us started. Sure. Well, thanks for having me and having us. You know, the biggest shift I saw this year, exemplifies shifts that are happening, is 
coming into force of the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act. So this, as many of your listeners know, this was a piece of legislation, bipartisan legislation passed by the United States Congress um, last December, came into force in July. And what this does is it stops goods coming into the United States from Xinjiang province in China that were made with forced labor. But how it differs from other legislation in the past is one, it is incredibly sweeping uh, in terms of what it defines and, and the way it goes into supply chains. It provides no harbor for the executive branch. There's no exemptions, national security exemptions or otherwise. So there's really no way to you know, make this law flexible in any way. And finally, it finds companies uh, or importers guilty until proven innocent. So you have to show that there's nothing in your supply chain, all the la layers down, that touch on Xinjiang or have forced labor from Xinjiang. And this is really proving almost unfeasible to meet um, this standard if your goods uh, that are coming in are questioned, in part because it's so granular, but also in part because the Chinese government is not allowing companies to do the audit all the way down to these levels. They have their own laws and legislation that have been put in place to stop some of this. So to me, this particular law and the expansiveness of it is an example of the distancing between the U.S. and, and China economies of the attempts on both sides, the active attempts on both sides to break up some of the supply chains that have been there and have formed over the last 40 plus years. And really, I think, is a harbinger to come of, of where the global economy is going as we move forward into 2023 and beyond. Great. Very interesting. And we'll sure to follow up on that. Fuzuki, what did you think is most you know, worthwhile or most remarkable or surprised you in the in the world of trade in, in the past year? It's great to be here, Rem. I mean, I see 2020 to you as the year of the bleak swan. You had one absolutely horrific event in the form of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, which has had a cascading impact on trade investment of the global economy. Uh, but you've also had a couple of minor more positive. And I think immediately after the Russian invasion, we thought global cooperation was essentially dead. And I think pleasantly surprised with both MC12 ratification at the WTO. And the fact that the G20 leaders summit in Bali was not a complete disaster. You know, you actually had an agreed communique at the end of it. And we will have to wait and see what India has in store for 2023 in terms of global cooperation. And I think within Asia, the context within Asia is Coming off 30 years of intense regionalism, which is what uh, Shannon's book is all about, I think Asians are now beginning to worry on how they connect with China, how they connect with the US, and whether their forward-looking trade and investment strategy, uh, do they hitch their fortunes uh, with the US? And you know that's both a philosophical and geopolitical question that's going to be consuming Asian minds in uh, 2023. So if I can just summarize both of you, it's it's a little bit of a glass half full, glass half half empty assessment regarding the future of, of global trade. To what extent are we decoupling or perhaps even recoupling at some levels? This year, there's been a lot of talk about the future of globalization. And this was supposed to be the year of the post-pandemic recovery. And instead, what we've seen is interest rate jumps across the board, economic nationalism returning with a vengeance, inflation spiking in many developed economies. There have been supply chain concerns. Shannon, you just mentioned, uh, mentioned one of them. The war in Ukraine has exposed economic dependencies and economic vulnerabilities. There's been talk of decoupling even about deglobalization. But in one of our 
earlier podcasts, we discussed that rather than deglobalization, global trade is being reordered, perhaps increasingly along regional lines. So regionalization rather than globalization. And if that's true, that fits terrific with the thesis of, of Shannon's new book, The Globalization Myth, Why Regions Matter. Now, Shannon, based on what you've written in your book and the thinking that you've done on the topic, how, how should we see the trajectory of globalization and how regional is it actually? So one of the fun things I found in doing the research for my book is that the world is already much more regional than we think. We look at these last 40 plus years and we think about it as, you know, the Hallison days of globalization. And this is when global supply chains proliferated uh, and you see imports from China and all these things happening all around the world. But really over this last 40 years, yes, those things have happened, but more often than not, you saw regionalization. So you look back at the economic data and you find one, not that many countries actually participated in the globalization wave of the last 40 years. So you only have about two dozen countries that saw trade as part of their GDP double or more. So they really opened up and you know globalized, so to speak. Dozens of other countries' trade stayed the same or it even went down. So there are countries that deglobalized over these last 40 years. So that's one side. The other side is that when companies and money and ideas and people went abroad, they didn't usually go to the other side of the world. Sometimes they did, but usually they stayed closer to home. And you know, one data point that drives this home to me is that the average good that's traded travels about 3,000 miles. And that is the distance between New York and Los Angeles. So that is not globalization, so to speak. And when you combine this, not that many countries were involved in this last 40 years globalization. And when they did go abroad, when trade did increase and happen, more often than not, it stayed closer to home. You already have this regionalization. And so today we look at these factors we're already talking about, you know, challenges to supply chains and geopolitics and changing nature, manufacturing and and the like, all of these, these aspects, which are real and transforming global trade and supply chains but you already have a very strong regional base. And I would argue many of these things we're talking about and and we'll be discussing here are just leading it more regional rather than not. So I'm not sure we're deglobalizing, but we are seeing a shift around. And I think that shift will lean towards regionalization. And Fazuki, do you, from your vantage point, sort of looking at Asian trade dynamics, do you concur with that thesis or what, what do you make of it? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I was in Singapore in 1990 witnessing this tidal wave of foreign direct investment and portfolio flows coming into East Asia. That was the foundation of the Asian miracle in in many, many ways. I was reflecting on this, thinking about some of the commentary that Shannon has done in the context of the book, that if Southeast Asia did not have an appropriate regional trading arrangement, much of that tidal wave of money coming into the region uh, would have probably had lesser impact Then the fact that in 1992, the Association of Southeast Asian Nations uh, launched its free trade area, uh, primarily opening up free trade in goods, and then using the ASEAN FTA to connect with uh, other parts of Asia, other more affluent parts of Asia, particularly Japan, Korea, China featured in this picture much, much later in that decade. So this is a spectacular success of regionalization during the globalization era. And the fact that this accelerated in the 2000s after China's accession to the WTO, where China really emerged as the final assembly point for this very complex, very dynamic supply chain 
with the originating party being American companies looking at Asia as the place, not necessarily as a source of cheap labor, but really as the bedrock of advanced manufacturing capabilities. And so, you know, this has been a great success for the last few decades. And you ask any policymaker in Asia today, and they'll say that happy story is unfortunately coming to an end. I mean, they worry about decoupling. They worry about the fact that America has been an absentee landlord over the past few years. Of course, the Biden administration, I think, through IPEF, has re-engaged. But you're now in this very interesting situation to figure out what kind of real tangible impact will there be if supply chains decouple from China? Does Apple go to Vietnam and India? And is it and how easy is that going to be? So the interesting aspect is as the rest of the world regionalizes, the poster child of regionalization, uh, Asia, is beginning to fret about its future. And Shannon, following on, on this, what in your analysis comes out as the driving force behind regionalization? Is it the technology? Is it automation? Is it more sophisticated manufacturing technologies that are then spread out across the region creating comparative advantages? Or is it the geopolitics, which is avoiding going beyond the 3,000 mile mark? Or is it a combination of both? What's, What's key to making regionalization happen? So it's really a combination of factors. And I think different parts of the world have gotten there in different ways. And so you look at these last 40 years, and there's really three big regions that have developed that now produce over 90% of, of the world's good, a European one, an Asian one, and a North American one. And the rest of the world only produces about 10% of, of global goods and has really been left on the margins. But these three regions have gotten there in different ways. So Europe got there through a very top-down, diplomatically driven model. And, you know, Rem, you're, you're based there. You'll know if you travel around Europe that every major city has a treaty named after it, right? The Treaty of Rome, the Treaty of Nice, the Treaty of Lisbon, you, you name it, the Treaty of Maastricht, right? And, and they really came, it was diplomats, states, statesmen and women coming together, getting rid of tariffs, lowering regulations, creating one passport, creating one currency that most you know, nations within the EU use. And so that's how integration and regionalization often happened, was sort of that top-down view. Asia was, was very different. Uh, it started in the 1960s. You saw Japanese CEOs and businesses running short of labor. And so they decided to outsource to uh, much poorer at the time, Taiwan and, and South Korea and Singapore and other places. They were assisted by their government. So, you know, the Japanese government would provide overseas development assistance to build, for instance, the first modern port in South Korea that faced Japan so they could export their goods back out. You know, they'd build industrial parks. They'd support these private sector investments that were going forward. And then, you know, as Vasuki said, by the 1990s, then you finally get free trade agreements that sort of knit this together. But you saw some of this regionalization integration already, the dynamism already happening. And then I'd say North America was a little bit the Goldilocks middle, but but not in a particularly effective way. So you have NAFTA, now USMCA. Um, it's a commercial agreement. It's an investment agreement. But you don't have the depth of connection and treaties that you see in Europe and, and movement of money and the like. And you don't see beyond a few particular sectors the, the widespread commercial ties um, that develop for many reasons in Asia. And so, yes, you have regionalization compared to other parts of the world, but not nearly as deep and concentrated in there. I think, you know, some of the commercial challenges 
that U.S.-based businesses and U.S.-based workers face have come from that, from that limited set of ties. So there's lots of ways to get there. And that also affects kind of where we go down the future. Is it how you got there also depends on the path you might take forward. Fuzuki, if you sort of take Shannon's three main regions, it's pretty clear to me sort of who's the main hub in the North American region. Even in Europe, it's also kind of clear. I mean, every EU member state, whether they like it or not, are kind of connected to the French or German supply chain. But in Asia, it, it's not necessarily clear who the dominant force is, or is it, right? Is this China? Or do Japan, South Korea, India, ASEAN have a have a role to play there? Because I think the answer to that question also provides some insights on how the geopolitics play out. Yeah, I think China is still the focal point. So if you ask a Japanese, Korean, or Taiwanese manufacturer, the answer 30 years ago would have been uh, they would have all looked at Southeast Asia probably as a manufacturing destination. But China has really upended the way East Asian economies have evolved in the last three decades because it has become both a massive uh, consumer market for many of these manufacturing companies and also a manufacturing destination. It's pretty remarkable that in 30 years, you know, I remember going to Shanghai in the early 1990s, where, you know, footwear and toy manufacturing was the extent to which uh, advanced technology existed in China. And the fact China was able to, you know, transcend all of these barriers and move up that value chain, in a sense, was recognition that this would be the place uh, which would serve as the final assembly point. Uh, for much of uh, Asia. But the question being asked today, and there are two forces really, and geopolitical, obviously, we've alluded to. In the last five years, China has become a much more expensive and a much more unpredictable way place to do business. Uh, the unpredictability we've seen in the second term of uh, Xi Jinping, not very surprising, wages have gone up. China is today an upper-middle-income country, uh, so cannot compete in footwear and, and garments like it used to do in the past. But I think where a multinational corporation would really fret is, is to think about, are there other countries in Asia which can play that supplementary role in taking over from China? So we are now in the transition stage. Everyone is looking at Vietnam, a more limited extent people are looking at India. I mean, Apple reported, I think last month that it manufactured a billion dollars worth of iPhones in India, which is, you know, ridiculously small compared to the 200 to 300 billion that comes out of the Foxconn factories in China. So we're in this great transition, and this could get appended by geopolitics. A lot of people take comfort that Xi Jinping and Biden actually met in Bali, whether they're able to stagger this process of decoupling so that you have multiple nodes of manufacturing in the region compared to this, you know, absolutely overwhelming dependence on China at the moment. Just on this, because I'm fascinated by what's happening inside the regions, or perhaps phrased differently, how do you define what a region is? Because if, if I look at East Asia or the Asia Pacific, I, I see the CPTPP, which also includes, uh, you know, North American and, and South American countries. Uh, we have IPEF, which has also a different overlay. There's RCEP, there is, there is the China hub, there's the geopolitical competition. So what is the region that we're talking about when, when we consider that Asian region? Uh, Shannon? Well, I think the technical term, it's squishy. Uh, <laughs> but, but, 
But you do see, I think it's a concentration of commerce and connections and money and other flows. And some of it is because of, of trade agreements and, you know, RCEP and other things allow other countries to potentially join the, the concentration that was East Asia to start and has sort of proliferated out. I think you still do see the decisions of companies, of CEOs, of boards of directors in terms of where they decide to place things, where they decide to invest, that also changes um, this landscape of who's part, who's in and who's out. And so domestic decisions on building infrastructure or setting rules or you know, making it easier to do business or harder to do business, that's also part of, of this, this element. But you do see a centripetal force here. And part of it is following the paths of, of other companies that have gone that way before. You do see it because of the, you know, the nuts and bolts that businesses need. They need infrastructure. They need labor forces. They need technology. They need access to all kinds of factors, to financing and, and raw materials and the like. So that is sort of how you get in here. And, and I would say this, um, and, I, and I totally agree with Basuki, today is sort of a, you know, once in a generation fluidity to supply chains is happening here because of, of these things. You know, we saw them set in the 90s, early 2000s, and now we're seeing a little bit of a free-for-all, at least in some sectors and some areas for lots of reasons. And it is an opportunity for those dozens of countries that were left on the sidelines over the last wave of globalization. They could get into this. They could join these regions um, that aren't necessarily totally geographic, right? They can be geopolitical as well. But it will depend on being able to make themselves attractive um, as a place to go and really hooking into the economies of scale and the specialization and the diverse bases of, of labor and raw materials and financing, all these things that have made international supply chains so robust in the face of global pandemics, in the face of geopolitics. I mean, there is a robustness to this way of structuring economic commerce um, that I don't see disappearing. We're going to take a quick break, and when we return, we're going to continue talking with Shannon and Fuzuki about the future of regionalization. As the global economy emerges from the pandemic and intensifying regulatory competition is further straining the open trading system, conversations about international trade and its contribution to global prosperity have never been more important. If you'd like to listen to more podcasts on global trade, search AIG Global Trade Series 2022. This series is brought to you by AIG and its partners, the Aspen Institute Germany, Chatham House, the Klingendahl Institute, the Institute of International Economic Law at Georgetown University Law Center, the International Chamber of Commerce UK and France, the Italian Institute for International Political Studies, the Jacques Delors Institute France, the Research Institute of Economy, Trade and Industry, and the St. Gallen Endowment for Prosperity Through Trade. We're back from our break. We're going to continue talking about is the future of global trade regional with Fazuki Shastri and Shannon O'Neill. I'm just thinking about the, the, the two regions that apparently aren't one of the, the three main regions of global trade, so South America and Africa. How do you plug them in? What kind of advice do you give? For instance, if I look at South America, South America is on the one hand, some countries are focusing on the CPTPP. There at the same time, there's the EU-Mercosur negotiations. But from a regionalist point of view, perhaps it makes more sense if South America puts its eggs in the North American regional basket and says that's where our future lies. Similarly for Africa, it's much more about how can Africa connect to the supply chains from the European hub rather than to go global. So to what extent 
is the thesis about regionalization also in some ways constraining where a number of the, the, the countries or regions that haven't been plugged in yet or haven't really benefited from globalization as such, does it constrain where they should put their, their focus on? I, I guess, Shannon, because you're, you've, you've done the heavy, heavy thinking on this and then, and then Fuzuki. That's right. I do think that's right. And so part of the challenge of South Americans in particular is that they have not regionalized. Trade with their neighbors is 10, maybe sometimes 15% of overall trade. And so when they when they do trade, they look much further afield than close by. One of the outcomes of that has been that basically they send out raw materials and they bring back finished goods. So they never get to participate or rarely get to participate in that meaty part of the supply chains. That's the processes and the creation and the manufacturing that would allow you to bring in new technologies, to you know have learning by doing in terms of managerial skills or innovation. They really get left on the ends of these pretty complex supply chains. Um, and that has led in South America particularly to what economists call premature deindustrialization in Brazil and other places where you're losing your manufacturing sector before you get out of a middle income level of an economy. And so as I look forward, how do they re-engage? What do they do? Well, one is, yes, tie yourself to the United States and there's ways that they can do that or tie yourself to Europe. There's benefits to be had. But it really is think about regionalization and, and how do you tie the countries together economically and to start, start with an industry or two, right? Start with South America is going to be a place of a plethora of green commodities. You know, they have lithium and cobalt and manganese and copper and a lot of other things that you need. So how could you start with that? This is a, you know, an area of increasing demand around the world. How do you start that not just shipping out those industries or shipping out those minerals, uh, but processing them at home? And there, you're going to need economies of scale. You're going to need to bring the countries together. And so that will involve creating the infrastructure that allows um, or enables countries to, you know, and goods to move between the countries, which is pretty weak today. It means thinking about continental or at least you know, regional workforces and, and having the technicians and engineers and the other kinds of people that you need and the training so that you can attract multinationals or other kinds of investments. It means setting up a business climate um, that allows people to set up supply chains, which can be pretty laborious uh, and cumbersome today. So I think there's a lot of things these countries can do. Uh, and then one thing I do think South America has, or many countries in South America have that they have yet to really tap into is as we see the world distance, or you see US-China, you know, the distance between the two grow, Western Hemisphere has a lot of free trade agreements with the United States. I and mean, the United States isn't signing a lot of new free trade agreements, as we know right now. But these are countries that a dozen of them already have those agreements. So leveraging that access you already have to create these supply chains and hook into the United States, I think, is something that would benefit many of these nations and their economies. Yes, I just wanted to pick up on Africa. I think the Africa-Europe Connectivity, of course, has been a standard feature for the past few decades. But I think no discussion about African economics uh, today can be complete without talking about China. And of course, China's influence in Africa has both been malign as well as benevolent. We've seen the malign nature in terms of the debt unsustainability of many countries, uh, particularly during the pandemic, a resolution of which is still uh, pending. I mean, there's a sense that China can do much more in providing forbearance in these debt restructuring agreements. But at the same time, I think it's opened African policymakers' eyes that, you know, they, they can really connect to a much broader world than just Europe. And, you know, one example is you've, you've seen bigger waves of investment now, both from India as well as Southeast Asia, coming into Africa. 
there's a big story in you know Africa data centers uh, in the fact that the biggest single biggest bottleneck for intra-African trade uh, really has been you know connectivity infrastructure within the region. So Africa really is a collection of regions. East Africa is better integrated compared with you know southern, central, and western Africa. So if you're looking at if you're if you're a manufacturing company attracted by African demographics, improving education standards. And I think the African story doesn't receive as much attention. And then if you reflect a little bit about how ASEAN went its own way in the 1980s and 1990s, I think there's a possibility for regional centers of excellence, even in Africa. And and I would think about East Africa really being the fulcrum of that. And perhaps focused a little bit, Fazuki, on India, in the sense that India doesn't seem like it has exhausted its potential for regional trade integration. Where do you see that discussion going? I'm hugely entertained whenever you know the EU or someone in Washington DC speaks about the possibility of you know trading arrangements with India. And I think the IPEF, the most recent example was IPEF. India essentially unilaterally decided that it's not going to participate in the trade segment of those IPEF conversations. So, you know, India has recalcitrant. It believes that particularly with what is happening in China, with the COVID lockdowns, with the potential uh, decoupling that might benefit India in terms of manufacturing investment, India thinks it's in a sweet spot all of its own. It does not have to subscribe to RCEP, CPTPP, or IPEF. It thinks the world will come to its doorstep. And I think there's an element of truth given favorable Indian demographics and the fact that, you know, in my personal view, India has snatched uh, defeat from the jaws of victory over the past decade in terms of, you know, really underplaying its economic potential. So India, I think, is going to be a very interesting example uh, uh, to Shannon's thing on regionalization of a country going on its own and because of its vast size, population and potential, its ability to attract foreign investment uh, into the country without India being a part of any major regional trade ar- trading arrangement. You know, it's pretty unprecedented if you think about it. Shannon, you were you were smiling when I asked that question. Is that a, a sign that you want to come in on this? I do think India is it's it's fascinating and I just love your I love your phrase about, you know, snatching defeat from the jaws of victory for India because it it does it right. It's the if if not already, you know, in the next week, it's going to be the biggest country in terms of population in the world. It it has, you know, an incredible set of resources and and particularly knowledge and, and human capital and the like. The question here, too, as you're saying, it's not going to sign free trade agreements. So can it follow that earlier Asian example where it's foreign direct investment that ties it to the rest of the region? Can it be part of that? And, and you know, perhaps other Indian companies that will then seed into Southeast Asia and tie itself. So South Asia doesn't become such a, a separate entity and, and is tied to the rest of the region. And I do think that is an open question. I would defer to Suzuki on the ins and outs of, uh, you know, Indian bureaucracy and Indian uh, doing business in India, which, you know, from from all accounts of those who I know who have tried to do it have never found it have found it at times a daunting task but but I think that is a place of promise and particularly of those countries that were left out you know I would echo on Africa and we just brought this Suzuki just brought in the demographic side here you know Africa is the fastest growing continent in terms of demography Nigeria is going to become the second biggest economy in the couple of decades to come or second biggest population in the couple of decades to come and so I think these shifts too are part of, you know, the opportunity 
to bring in more countries to the global economy, to bring in sort of growth and prosperity to those that were left on the margins before. But it's also a challenge because if they're not brought in, then you lead to more geopolitical disruptions and other challenges. And on Africa, two very interesting data points. One, we of course have seen while Europe and the United States and and China are decoupling that Africa uh, signed a massive African Continental Free Trade Agreement, which is actually leading to more regional integration. And secondly, I think it was the news of today or yesterday that President Biden suggested inviting the African Union to join G20 summits, which is also an interesting indication of growing attention to Africa as a a relevant trade actor. Shannon, I said this before we started recording that the timing of your book seems to be exquisite in terms of that 2022 was a a year about uh, which focused on supply chain risk uh, about decoupling or reshoring or nearshoring or friendshoring and that seems to fit very nicely with your thesis about regionalization i'm just curious how have countries in south america on the one hand and for you fuzuki in in southeast asia responded to these shocks over the past year, has the conclusion been to kind of follow Shannon's advice to really double down on building these regional and interregional trade links? Or has it been to focus more on being economically nationalist and decoupling? What's been, you think, the main story in terms of how South America, on the one hand, and Southeast Asia have have approached this year in trade? Well, I'd say globally, the answer is all of the above. Some have have not risen to the occasion and, and others have. Let me talk about sort of the difference between South America and North America on this. Uh, and so South America was really not part of these trends over the last several decades and, and still is somewhat inwardly focused, dealing with its own domestic politics, trying to recover from a very difficult uh, years of COVID with very high levels of deaths and disruptions to their economies. Um, There are also places where there's other challenges in each country. And so you've seen an anti-incumbent political wave, but really so far, mostly new presidents who are looking internally rather than, than externally. So I don't see them yet really taking advantage of this moment, unfortunately. North America, I see a little bit different. There's some some, I would say, green shoots, let's say, in, in terms of a changing thinking. And interestingly, a lot of these come from the United States. And we're seeing in the U.S. an eagerness, um, perhaps a hubris uh, in terms of industrial policy, in terms of an administration, but also a Congress that really wants to rework the underpinnings of the U.S. economy in terms of how it works in terms of the subsidies or other you know, levers that the U.S. government is going to use to reshape supply chains and production and all of that. And one thing we have seen is some of those bills, whether it's you know, $52 billion to create semiconductor chips, whether it's almost $400 billion to green the economy and create electric vehicle battery supply chains. Some of these do provide an umbrella to include Mexico, Canada, perhaps others in the Western Hemisphere. So 
thinking a little bit more regionally uh, in terms of the supply chains that they hope to create in you know, what are considered critical industries. So semiconductors, electric vehicle batteries, we see it also in critical minerals. You know, The Department of Defense is really guiding that. I think we may see it in 2023 in pharmaceuticals as, as they start thinking about that sector as well. So, so overall, um, there's different approaches. I would say that you know, while the U.S. is maybe leaning a little bit forward and thinking about regionalization as a national security approach, Mexico has actually been pulling back over these last few years and really turning inward as well, sort of the way South America is. So it's a mixed bag in in the Western Hemisphere, but one that will be debated in policy um, and then also in the in the commercial ties that are coming. And in Southeast Asia, yeah, I think uh, the Russian invasion uh, for Southeast Asia is really a sign. You know, th- there's already a lot of pressure from the U.S. On Southeast Asian countries uh, to you know to sign on to subscribe to a particular policy initiative. I think IPEF was a big victory for the Biden administration, and the same token, RCEP uh, was a big uh, victory for Beijing. Even though you already had a pre-existing ASEAN-China free trade agreement, RCEP essentially signaled that Southeast Asia was placing its bets both on China and Washington D.C. And the Russian invasion demonstrated that we're living in this complex, multipolar world. And if you're an ASEAN policymaker today, uh, you want to have your cake and eat it too. Uh, you want those levels of uh, Chinese investment into Southeast Asia continue with the same intensity. You want access to the American market. A lot of ASEAN countries were devastated when America pulled out of CPTPP. And in, indeed, they see IPEF as a way of the U.S. re-engaging with the, with the region on, on trade. I think India signifies this the best. They don't want to be seen uh, at this stage showing their cards in either direction. I would say that you know this strategy is not going to last for long. There is going to be a pinch point in the next five years or 10 years. And who knows, it could be China and Taiwan which would present that pinch point where ASEAN will have to resolutely decide whose side it is on. But I think at the moment, they think that they've got time and they've got another five years more of enjoying Chinese tourism flows back into the region whenever that reopens and Chinese trade and investment. You raise an interesting point, Fuzuki, which I think holds for Europe as well, which is Europe is also, sure, it's a regional hub or it's a region in itself, but it's also very much dependent, of course, on exports and imports, both to the United States and to China. And it's pursuing a policy where it wants to avoid having to choose. But what will be the impact on regionalization and regional supply chains if we move to a sort of a G2 world where basically the US and China are the two big geopolitical behemoths that force others to decide? Or am I being too pessimistic? It would be devastating for Asia if that moment arrived, because everything that we've seen in terms of dynamism in economic growth, trade and investment, in the fact that you know absolute poverty is on its way down, even in South Asia, I think a geopolitical event in Asia would have very damaging consequences for the region. People would worry less about supply chains and trade and investment flows. They would really fret about economic security. And I think this is the underlying concern. The the, the message from the Russian invasion for Asia is if a similar thing happens in the South China Sea or it could be a Chinese invasion of uh, Taiwan, as has been speculated, is essentially going to come to a rapid end, right? So economics 
is going to play a less prominent role uh, than politics at that stage. Maybe very different message for North America and Europe. Shannon? You know, I think it depends which supply chains we're talking about. And, and we are barreling towards a decoupling or distancing in those that are seen as critical to national security, which is becoming increasingly broadly defined. So, you know, high tech components or particular minerals or medicines that save us from pandemics and the like. And those I think we may see, you know, a much harder, harder line taken. But there are other products that, you know, the day-to-day things that we use from, you know, your water bottle to your refrigerator to, you know, the, the electronics and to, to clothing, all these sorts of things, which which I'm not sure we'll see such a hard decoupling or, or break. Though, you know, there's a lot of other factors. Geopolitics is, is an incredibly important one and it is, it is heightening, but there's lots of other factors that are causing the shifting of supply chains around. Vasuki mentioned, you know, that, you know, wages aren't as cheap as they used to be in China as China becomes an upper middle income country. And so people are moving around based on those basic costs. Um, people are moving around based on, you know, the rise of automation and manufacturing and services and, and the way things are made are, are different. And I remember talking to the CEO of a big company and he was telling me they have plants all over the world, but they're the exact same plants wherever they go. So if they're in North Carolina or they're in Cambodia, they're the exact same plants. So they really come down to logistics as being the big cost that they look at and access to markets and the like. As I look at these next 10 years or, or 20 years, I don't see an end to globalization that some put out there. I see some of what's been happening already happened, but what we're going to see is a movement around based on geopolitics, but based on a lot of other factors, you know, climate change, automation, demographics, consumer demand and, and customers. And, and there, you know, I defer to Vasuki, but, you know, Asia is a growing region. And I know, of course, there's a virtuous or vicious circle that can happen there. But as you look to the next billion customers that are going to come into the world or middle class customers, um, many of them are going to be there. So I have a, a, a final question for you, which is when you think about the future of globalization, which is a huge topic, I know, but when you think about it in the context of what we've now discussed about the importance of regions and regionalization, will that future be shaped by competition between ever growing or more integrated regions? Or is there also still a case for cross-regionalism, for lack of a better word, for big multilateral initiatives that span regions? Is there a case for EU-US trade liberalization, for instance? Or are we destined to have these regions be the fulcrum of where global trade takes place and that it actually gets very squishy, to use your word, Shannon, where these regions start to overlap? So I would say that one thing this last decade has showed us through geopolitics, through COVID, through all these other disruptions is that international trade and supply chains are incredibly important. Um, They're incredibly profitable and they allow a resiliency that bringing everything home does not allow. Um, And we saw that in the ability to scale up and make, you know, masks and other PPE equipment in just a couple of months to to save the world or or save millions of lives. Uh, We've seen it in others as, you know, we had unprecedented demand for certain types of goods. Sure, there were empty store shelves for a while, but within a couple of months, those things were back. And so I think the profitability and the efficiency and the resilience of supply chains actually, rather than be a huge challenge, were shown that they they actually work. So I think we will still see that. But 
there is an importance for globalization, not just regionalization, but globalization. And it's important both because sometimes markets are on the other side of the world and you would want to ask, you would want to access them. You would aspire to serve 8 billion consumers, not just the consumers in your, in your own country or in those nearby. And then there are a lot of big global issues that are on the table that just can't be dealt with country by country or region by region. You know, climate change is, is the most obvious here, but justice for people with forced labor, with other kinds of, of issues. You know, I do think those are global issues um, and security issues, as we've seen brought to the fore with, with Russia, Ukraine. So yes, regionalization, I think we're headed more in that way, but I would hate for us to lose some of the global ties and connections we've had, because I think we need them for some of these other existential threats that, that are coming our way. Fazuki, perhaps you can touch also on what this would mean for you know the WTO, because we have this international institution, which is mainly set up to help draft rules for all of humanity in terms of trade. But what does regionalization do to that? Yeah, I take solace in the fact that we're usually hopelessly wrong in predicting the future. <laughs> I was, I was re reflecting on the fact that not so long ago, we were told that data was going to be the new oil. And we'd never thought about semiconductors uh, representing the single biggest national security issue as it has become today in terms of, you know, the America wanting to reshore. So I think, you know, so you're going to have islands, I think, of integration is the way I see it. Hopefully on cross-cutting issues like climate, the world is going to come together. It's going to cooperate because, you know, that's a shared global problem. And I think that Multilateralism, I think the WTO issue extends, I think, to both the effectiveness of multilateral institutions on the geopolitical side, so that would be the UN system, on the economic side, so, you know, is the IMF, World Bank, WTO fit for purpose in this very fluid geopolitical environment? Ngozi at WTO really pulled off, I think, this miracle in the form of MC12, and I think it's a miracle only for trade wonks such as the ones on this podcast. And so the question for WTO is, what can you build? Are there other areas of cooperation short of a big grand bargain trading deal, which has eluded us for three decades? And the answer is probably no. So you know, it is going to be in finding these specific areas of cooperation where you can build global support. And to Shannon's earlier point on supply chains, absolutely, they will be reshoring industrial policy and a certain list of national security items on which they will be friendshoring, Janet Yellen's famous phrase. Uh, but the broad structure of the global economy, I think it's in a shared interest that it remains the same for the future. And, and I'm not making a prediction there. And on that note, unfortunately, that is all we have time for today. I thought this was very interesting and fascinating. It's great to be able to listen to your insights and your thinking on the topic. Shannon O'Neill, author of The Globalization Myth, Why Regions Matter, and Fazuki Shastri, author of Has Asia Lost It? Thank you both very much for joining me on this conversation about is the future of global trade regional? And I'm sure we're going to return to a number of the themes we discussed today, whether that's regionalization, or Africa, South America, Southeast Asia, the geopolitics driving trade, and the future of the WTO in next year's 
Global Trade Series, and I hope to bring you back then as well. If, however, you are interested in the expert conversations that are part of this year's AIG Global Trade Series, please go to our website and you will find them at www.aig.co.uk slash GTS or wherever you get your podcast from. The AIG Global Trade Series 2022 is an international partnership between AIG, the Aspen Institute Germany, Chatham House, the Klingendahl Institute, the Institute of International Economic Law at Georgetown University Law Center, the International Chamber of Commerce UK and France, the Italian Institute for International Political Studies, the Jacques Delors Institute France, the Research Institute of Economy, Trade and Industry, and the St. Gallen Endowment for Prosperity Through Trade. To access articles and opinion pieces from partners in the Global Trade Series, and to listen to more podcasts on global trade, search AIG Global Trade Series 2022, or follow the AIG Global Trade Series wherever you get your podcasts.